The Trump administration is willing to throw the brick. Uh, and the question will be what a Biden administration would do and how far they're willing to go to try to assert the order that, that was, wasn't optimal and could be improved. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm Lisa Highland. This week, we look at the energy and climate issues we expect to play out in the upcoming U.S. elections. Sarah Ladislaw, Kevin Book, and Paul Bodner join us to examine the top energy priorities for the Trump and the Biden campaigns. They talk about how the final composition of the U.S. Congress, especially the U.S. Senate, will matter to the next president's ability to enact their agenda. They look at how some cities and states are filling a perceived policy gap at the federal level, especially on climate. And then finally, they turn to the international stage, where climate change will likely remain a top global priority. Here's your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Welcome, everybody, to an Energy 360 podcast on election year 2020. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, the Senior Vice President and Director of the Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Very pleased to have with us today uh, two of our uh, affiliates with the program, experts in their own right in thinking about energy and climate policy. We've got uh, Paul Bodner, who's the Managing Director for the Global Climate Finance uh, Group at the Rocky Mountain Institute. Paul was previously a Special Advisor to the President in Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change in the National Security Council for the Obama Administration. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me. And then we also have Kevin Book, who is a Managing Director of Clearview Energy Research Partners, which is an independent research and analysis firm of macro energy trends. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thanks for having me again. Great. So there's a lot to cover in talking about the elections this year. Um, Needless to say, 2020 is not a normal year. Uh, We're experiencing a global pandemic. Uh, The U.S. economy has taken a pretty big hit. We are uh, no less divided uh, than we've been in the past, and we have a whole bunch of both domestic and international issues to contend with that both uh, are directly related to energy and climate change, but also indirectly kind of shape the issues that we're going to be dealing with in this election cycle. So maybe just to level set, um, how are you two thinking about the ways in which energy and climate, where they rank uh, in your thinking about the election cycle this year? Maybe we'll start with Kevin. Well, the the energy part of the election for most election cycles, Sarah, has to do with the price of gasoline, which is about two thirds of what the average voter spends on energy out of their pocket. And right now, the price of gasoline is really low uh, for a variety of reasons, including the pandemic that you mentioned. Uh, And so you would ordinarily say this is not an energy election uh, because that's kind of the the delineation for, for most purposes. There, there were times when, when energy elections were really driven by oil prices. It wasn't so long ago, in 2008, both McCain and Obama were campaigning for climate policy that was mitigation focused and also for drilling, maybe not both in the same order, but that's the way it was. And so uh, what's happened is because it's not an energy election, it's become more of a climate election, which is to say that uh, essentially the low price of gasoline de-risks climate activist campaigning to some degree, and it's enabled uh, the Biden campaign to focus on an issue that can probably be important for winning the election, which is that climate change can animate the progressive wing of the party. Uh, But it's not everybody's issue still in America today. Uh, And it's obviously not Republicans' issue that they're campaigning on, except that the president is able to use it as a wedge issue. Uh, It's useful in the sense that politically differentiating oneself from one's competition 
is is sort of what elections are about. And so uh, that's where a lot of the energy part of the election comes up from our perspective. The one last thing I'll say is that you're not going to win and lose an election on energy for the most part, but there is at least one swing state, Pennsylvania, where both candidates seem very wary about what they say about energy and how they phrase it. Uh, and that's because it's probably going to be a close election. And in a close election, anything can matter, even energy. Okay, so maybe not an energy election, but a climate election. Paul, how are you seeing it from your vantage point? Yeah, I think Kevin is right about that. I, I guess the question is, uh, to what extent really is it a climate election in terms of salience? You could argue that Above all, it's a Trump election in terms of being a referendum on the incumbent, which is often true, but more true in this case than in many others. It's a COVID election from a public health point of view. It's an economy election, given the state of the economy, and maybe somewhere in third, third or fourth or fifth place is, is climate, depending on where you are. I think if you live on the West Coast and on the Gulf Coast, then climate may be on your mind more than in other parts of the country. But the question is, you know, are there swing voters who are not sure whether they like Trump or Biden, but boy, are they passionate about climate change? Probably not so many of those. Uh, Kevin gave an interesting example of swing voters in a place like Pennsylvania or elsewhere in the current or former industrial heartland that might fit that description. They may not care about climate, but they may care about the shift from traditional to, to new energies and, and where they sit there. I think that to the extent that either Trump or, or Biden has tried to make the manufacturing and competitiveness side of, of the energy transition an issue in the election, again, I think they've both sort of tried at times. The question is whether that's going to feel salient to a, a critical mass of voters, and I'm just not sure that it is. Yeah, maybe just to add my two cents on this, I, I do think whether or not you regard it as a central issue or not, or a popular issue or not, it certainly is peripherally related to a lot of the top line issues, right? Like once again, we're facing an election where the future of the economy whether you're Trump or you're Biden, energy comes out of your mouth at one end of that sentence or not. And they're fundamentally different visions of the future, right? And so it's interesting to see that even if it weren't a top line issue, it is sort of deeply integrated into some of these other issues, like inequality, right? Your perception of inequality and how to solve those issues. There's a climate angle to those things too. So it is interesting to see how uh, it, it does become a factor in, in even some of those other issues that we don't normally as associate with energy and climate change at a, at a top line level. Okay, so why don't we think about outcomes and implications for a little bit. Um, Kevin, maybe we'll start with you. What would you think about the domestic energy and climate priorities for a second Trump administration? In some ways, I feel like this is a really hard question to answer. So I, I'd like to start there with you. Well, you have, sort of have to start with a scenario definition. Does, does Trump have a, a Congress with at least one chamber that is Republican? And our answer is probably yes. The likelihood uh, that you, you get a Trump win and you don't end up retaining at least a couple of the at-risk Senate seats is low. It's, I mean, it's possible that Democrats could also take the Senate. Uh, and then there would be a very different kind of Trump administration. Uh, but it, you know, the status quo, if it holds, means that Trump really basically has four more years to lock in and defend the last four. Uh, the deregulatory agenda that he laid out uh, whether or not he succeeds in court 
will be something that he's going to be spending a lot of time in court defending. Uh, he does have an advantage, which is that he's, he's filled the courts with a lot of conservative in a jurisprudential sense, jurists, uh, who, who are likely to, to, to favor narrow interpretations of statute. And so some of the, the rules that he's rewritten are probably defensible in that respect, but not all of them. And some of those fights could, could have some irony to them. He could find that the, the strict constructionist judges he put there to read the law the way it's written don't agree with his agency's interpretations. But four more years to do that, that's pretty ample, I think, for, for what you, you've got so far in the first four. The, the dominance agenda, I know you're, that's your favorite word. You always like the phrase energy dominance. Uh, and, uh, and yet it, it doesn't really mean something uh, so, so mean and, and pushy. Uh, it really means production, uh, moving it to the coasts and getting it out of the country. Uh, it's, it's a fossil energy agenda. It's a molecules agenda. And so it, it's a very different future that Trump would be setting up for and investing in. And maybe the last part of one of the priorities is that whoever wins this election is going to be in a position to, to decide what a strategic industry is for recovery-focused stimulus spending. And so that decision, if it's a Trump decision, is probably a heavy industry sort of fossil-intensive kind of strategic sector, as opposed to maybe a greener choice that Biden might make. So uh, really, it's a molecules side of the molecules-electron divide. Paul, I wanted to get your thoughts on this too, but specifically, because I know you spend a lot of time working with U.S. states uh, that are sort of stuck with their climate agenda through a number of different, you know, coalitions and work. What do you think the the climate-friendly states' reaction would be to a second uh, Trump administration? Well, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you've definitely seen governors in these states emboldened to step forward on, on climate. Look at Gavin Newsom, using his own words, ripping the Band-Aid off, committing California to ban uh, sales of internal combustion engines by 2035. Huge moves being made in New York and, and other states. Even North Dakota is using CARES funding to act funding to plug abandoned oil and gas wells. So each in their own way, uh, states are definitely moving to the front of the agenda. And the, the, the momentum there has been positive. Of course, on the other hand, the fiscal environment for these states is going to be largely terrible in the years to come, uh, also for cities that have been engines of, of progress. And so, so I think one thing we've learned in the last few years in general, we started out making lemonade out of lemons by needing to focus on the non-federal level for climate action. But in doing so, I think a lot of folks discovered just how many levers are at this disposal of states and cities and businesses to pull, and they started pulling them in earnest. But if you look at projected tax revenues, um, et cetera, these states are gonna be under enormous financial pressure and they will be distracted by those pressures. And so, uh, there's definitely cause for worry. How it all adds up, I think, gets pushed through the filter of what's going on in the real economy in these states and the, the continuing changing in, in, in economics in the power sector. Increasingly during this period, some project that this will be the four-year period as soon as this four-year period when the, the cost of electric vehicles reach parity with ICE vehicles on a sticker price basis. We'll see if that happens. But you know, all these dynamics interact. 
And my feeling about it is, I think we would see more progress than some might worry about, but we're in a race against time here in general. And as Bill McKibben says, winning slowly is the same as losing. So by that metric, we might still be losing in that scenario. (laughs) Kevin, I wanted to ask you a question about Congress. Quite similarly, how much would a second Trump administration need Congress to enact its agenda? And maybe adding to that, I've often thought about a second Trump administration that you essentially get maybe one year, maybe two years of genuine Uh, here's what a second Trump administration would like to achieve. And then the Republican Party has to figure out what comes next, right? And what comes next after uh, a a second Trump administration? And and maybe there would be other priorities that would be on the table, Uh, particularly from my vantage point, there's just not really been a Republican answer to the question of what do you do about climate change? You know, what, what do you do about this agenda? What do you do about stimulus or building new infrastructure for the purposes of recovery? So what, what does the Trump administration need from Congress? But also, like, what might congressional Republicans start to push that would be of their own agenda that has something to do with energy and climate? Well, so the, the role Congress is likely to play is sort of a limiting one, uh, not necessarily a source of assistance and one of the examples you can you can see of that is uh, recently, thanks again to low gasoline prices, Trump has withdrawn acreage from offshore drilling and leasing uh, that he had previously committed to open up. And the purpose of doing it now is to is to make a strong electoral bid in in Florida, yes, uh, but also to help at risk members like Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Uh, and uh, if you look at some of the the options that are open for, for offshore drilling, just to take an, an issue that, that Trump had campaigned on in his first campaign, uh, it won't be an option necessarily. You've still got, you've still got a North Carolina and a Florida seat to think about in the, the mid-cycle in 2022. Marco Rubio uh, is up. Uh, he's, uh, he's not a fan of offshore drilling, at least off of Florida's coasts. Uh, and so there's a, there's a limiting aspect to where things could go, even from within the Re- Republican Party. Uh, and then, of course, there's the appropriations role that the House plays, the vital funding of the government that continues to empower what could be an even bigger House majority. Uh, and so the, the Trump administration can do an awful lot with executive authority. Paul was, was right to point out just how much the, the states have been able to achieve through their own rollback rebound, right? That Trump became the greenest president in history uh, because the states reacted to him so so aggressively. But the, the Trump administration will still have all of the executive powers that it can uh, use and the willingness to use them in novel ways. Uh, and, you know, those lessons won't be unlearned by the next president. But if he has a second term to use them, uh, Congress will, will probably struggle and fail to, to reclaim its primacy Uh, if the last several decades of history are any precedent. Well, turning to the other uh, option for the election outcome, which is the Biden administration, Paul, what do you see as being the top priorities for uh, for a Biden administration in sort of domestic energy and climate policy? Well, they have a detailed plan and it has a few key (laughs) themes. Uh, look, l- l- let me frame it by saying I think it really depends on what, what happens with the Senate, and we can talk about that. But, you know, the pillars of, of their plan are 
are focused on electrification, right? Electrify as much as you can of the economy and clean the grid. Th those are uh, well understood in our field to be the, the pillars of progress that can sweep up a lot of, of the emissions. And, and it is a, a key part of their program. Secondly, a focus on research and development, uh, investing the money that only the government can invest in breakthrough technologies um, that struggle to attract commercial financing at the early stages and, and doing so in concert with other nations, by the way. Obviously, a strong focus on environmental justice, which is welcome and which you know, was, was brought in particular through the primary process by the, the strength of Bernie Sanders and other uh, progressive candidates. So, you know, I, I think the deep answer to your question is, will this administration be able to take a creative uh, approach to climate policy, let's say in a situation where the Senate does not turn democratic, and do more than just run the, the, the same old plays of executive orders? and asking agencies of the government to go figure out their little corner of the economy and then go through the regulatory grind. Because then we're playing the same game we've been playing for, for the last decade back and forth, you know, punting punting the football from one end of the field to the to, to the other to the other and back in terms of executive action that's done and undone and industry trying to make sense of sense of where it's going. There's an opportunity to be more creative than that, to think about not, not decarbonizing the economy as an interagency process, but thinking more holistically about how change really happens in the economy and what are the forces, what are the market catalysts that are particularly important in the American context that have a track record of changing things quickly. And it's not necessarily the regulatory grind. It's finance, right, and using financial regulation in the financial sector as a portal or choke point, depending on how you look at it, to drive change in the real economy. It's business model innovation, technology innovation, consumer preference. So thinking about the these forces that actually have a better record of, of driving broad, deep, and rapid change in the economy than you know, bureaucrats in an agency being asked to come up with a plan and write, write long regulations about it. I think that the example of the UK is very interesting in this regard, and, and this brings me to my point about the Senate. I think that if the Democrats win back the Senate and hold both Congress and the White House, then we will be in a completely different political environment on this stuff, and we'll be talking about legislation and what you can shoot through the keyhole of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a majority whose duration is, is, is unknown but presumed to be short. And there, I think we would do well to look to what's happening in Europe, where in the UK last year, in the middle of Brexit, uh, the UK passed in record time a net zero by 2050 law. And that law had some unexpected and pretty rapid effects. For example, the Bank of England, which was primed on this topic of climate change, you know, began to really push on the banking system in the UK, which is, of course, the, the, the premier uh, financial center in Europe, and emitting companies in the sectors that, that are banked by those institutions started hearing from them right away, right? So, so the Bank of England said, hey, guess what? You now are domiciled in a jurisdiction where net zero is the law. Tell me about transition risk. 
And you could see the same thing happening in the U.S. So I would say if the Democrats win back the Senate, we should not go back to the same old chestnut of arguing about whether cap and trade or carbon pricing is the better legislative route. We should think about decoupling the targets that those, each of those options represents from the mechanics of how to get there, to get to those targets, and perhaps think about following the example of the UK and France and the EU in general and say, let's make net zero by 2050 the law of the land first, and then we can have a good old fashioned argument about the role of government in driving that transformation in different ways. But just by making it the law, in, uh, important things will start to happen. And, and, and it's not a complicated bill, right? And, it, and it, you don't have to figure out the massively complicated pork ballot politics of which district gets what, you know, uh, industries affected by what level of carbon price and trade exposure and all of that. So that's my very uh, long answer to your simple question. It's a good answer, and it leaves a lot for Kevin to respond to, which I'm sure he's going to do. Um, but I wanted to add something to Kevin for your response. At the beginning of what you were talking about, Paul, you made reference to sort of the pendulum effect, right? Sort of the regulatory back and forth that we kind of consistently find ourselves in and, and this being an opportunity to potentially kind of come out of that and what would the strategy look like to, be, to do that. Um, I'm curious, Kevin, whether you see if there was a, you know, a Biden administration, are we going to see the same old response from sort of, you know, traditionally red states to a sort of rapid decarbonization approach, which is part of the, you know, part of the Biden agenda? Or has enough changed in the real economy? Some of the things that Paul was talking about, like investor pressures, uh, where people are, you know, in the energy sector, many, you know, utilities across the U.S., other companies all very much feeling like they want to be moving in this direction or they're making pledges to move in this direction. Are we going to see that same sort of you know, red-blue divide in terms of, uh, of the way states position relative to a new Biden administration? Well, if I, if I were to give you any other answer besides yes, I would be dishonest. Uh, yes, we are going to see the exact same resistance. And uh, that's our strong expectation for reasons that are really fundamental uh, in basis. So Paul talked, talked a lot about swift change with big goals in mind and the inevitability of a net zero by 2050 target as an organizing principle, which, uh, you know, you'd think that 30 years is enough time to do just about anything. You fully depreciate most plant and equipment in 30 years. Uh, so you're probably okay with that. And most business can get there, but not all of them. And in, in some states, it turns out it's, it's fairly highly concentrated in, in the states that voted for Trump in 2016. It's where the fossil energy production is. In fact, an easy way to think about it is that the red states produce it and the blue states reduce it. So there is a divide there. And it's not, it's not just because people think differently uh, about ideological stuff. Uh, and if you, if you think about how this election could play out, um, there are some people who've written some very disturbing articles about what could go wrong. Um, that's not our line of work at Clearview, uh, but we're aware of them. And it seems reasonable to expect there could be a fight in a close election. That fight probably doesn't make people more receptive on either side to finding the middle ground. It probably, for an incoming Biden administration, in the all-guns-blazing scenario that Paul described, it's going to make it look like they have 18 months to change the next 30 years. 
Uh, and that's not going to leave a lot of room. And the 18 months, of course, would be before the, the midterm congressional elections and an opportunity for those red states to have their say in, in the Congress. Uh, so there's not going to leave a lot of room, probably, for, for handholding uh, among the, the folks who lost uh, to, to get some, some succor from the victors. So, yeah, I don't think there's going to be a lot of receptivity to it. Now, in the long run, 30 years is enough time to depreciate just about any property, plant, and equipment, uh, and business can find a way. But I don't think it starts out easy, and I don't think it starts out with acceptance, no. Paul, you brought up uh, you brought up Congress in your response already, but I'm I am curious. Uh, you, I mean, I think your vision of of you know establishing a net zero by twenty fifty target as the law of the land, and then having a functioning legislative process or to work out the details along the way is actually quite complicated, right? Even among sort of a a democratic Senate and a democratic House, it might be hard to work out some of the details of of how you go about doing that. In what ways do you think that a Biden administration would need to work with Congress? And what do you think that would be easy for them to be able to work with Congress on versus what would be what would be tricky? So I think what I'm suggesting here, and it would be fun to do a separate podcast on this with folks who work on the Hill on these issues, is that maybe we could simplify or put make a sequence here, which is, again, what, what cap and trade, what, what Waxman Markey tried to do was to answer all the questions at once. You know, it, it, it tried to create an overall emissions trajectory for the, for the U.S. in the long term and figure out all the mechanics associated with getting there and answer all the distribution and political questions and sector questions necessary. I, I think the question we should try to answer is, what if you separated those things out and you didn't try to negotiate all that complexity uh, in Congress in that 18-month period and you just focused on a 10-line bill, which is that the United States of America shall, uh, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a legislator, <laughs> you know, but, but that essentially focuses on the simple objective enshrined in law that the United States will reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And yes, it would have to say a few things about what comes next, mm-hmm. um, but it does not need to... Uh, be the full raft of implementing legislation necessarily to do that. But it could set up a process for having that debate while making clear that the target is the target, right? And failure to agree on any particular piece of the implementing plan does not invalidate the target. So that's my challenge and welcome folks who are lawyers uh, to shoot me down. (laughs) We'll have to invite some uh, Kyle to come on next time and and uh, and shoot you down or or bolster your point uh, on that. Okay, one thing I wanted to just clarify with both of you before turning to the international landscape here is the role of stimulus, right? So stimulus, one would imagine, was going to play a pretty significant role in whatever post-COVID environment we find ourselves in, it would really be nice to be able to say about now that we were in that post-COVID environment, but it looks like that's not going to be the case for a while. There's a big push in the international community to think about um, stimulus efforts and the role that they play in tackling some of our broader energy and climate goals. On this podcast, I had asked the Secretary of Energy, Dan Bruyette, about the role of stimulus in the energy sector, and um, his you know, answer was there wasn't one. 
there wasn't really a role for the energy sector in, in a stimulus package. There wasn't necessarily a need for a stimulus package. You know, by the way, that was sort of the business of Congress. Whereas a Biden administration clearly sees an opportunity for you know stimulus to play a very large role in meeting and executing on their agenda. I just wanted to see if either of you had some reflections on the role that stimulus will play and how the opportunity for stimulus may have changed the dynamics in, in both a, a Trump outcome or a, a Biden administration outcome. Kevin, do you want to start? Sure. I, I mean, the history here is pretty well defined. and we, Not so long ago that we can any of us claim to have forgotten it. The Recovery Act in 2009 laid out $90 billion in clean and green stimulus over 10 years. And uh, the Biden campaign came in saying they would do $500 billion a year over four years, $2 trillion in the first term. Uh, they might not be able to get to that, but could they get to you know, $100 billion a year, uh, $100 billion over four, maybe. Uh, and one of the vehicles for doing that would be stimulus. Uh, the, the question is, what is, a, what is acceptable? And, uh, you know, part of that will have to do with the makeup of the Congress, a topic I think we've, we've covered uh, at least a little bit. But uh, there are some things that, that tend to pass well through Congress and some that do not. Uh, and uh, one that tends to go through pretty well uh, is giving tax incentives to industries as long as everybody gets some of the tax incentives. Uh, so the, the Biden campaign's focus on advanced manufacturing and, and deployment and uh, delivery of green and clean uh, technologies in the stationary and mobile sectors, you know, a stimulus could go a long way towards that. And you might ask, well, okay, so, so what do you get for everybody else? And there are some consensus areas like the, the 45Q credit for carbon capture, direct air capture, uh, seems to be a sort of a middle ground that folks can support. Uh, there's probably a few others. Uh, and uh, with even a narrow majority, uh, the Democrats could probably pull this off. The one other thing, though, in terms of stimulus on the Trump side, is that, you know, maybe maybe Secretary Briette doesn't see a direct role. Uh, but there is an implicit role, which is that stimulating energy-intensive industry, and particularly rewarding it for coming home and building new big facilities here that, that require a lot of energy to construct and operate is itself a form of energy stimulus. And the reshoring of heavy industry as part of stimulus would have a second order energy effect. Paul, did you want to add anything to that? Not much. I, I, I think clearly, clearly, uh, if, if one is uh, pumping uh, hundreds of billions or trillion dollars into the economy, yeah, it sure does matter where that's going and whether it's strategic or, or not whether it's going to prop up zombie companies, um, some zombie companies in the oil and gas sector or, or strategically investing energy in the future. And there's been a lot written about this, how you, can, uh, how you can do building retrofits through stimulus, how you can electrify mobility faster by building charging infrastructure and other infrastructure, you know, debt forgiveness even for, for sustainable recovery. Um, so there's a lot of ways and tools the federal government can, can apply here. And you just have to look at Europe to see what a high percentage of their stimulus is being directed at, at green to see how an economic competitor to the United States is, is looking at this question. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, I think a, th a point that probably deserves to be made. Paul keeps mentioning Europe and how much they're spending. Uh, and of course, we've been spending a lot, too. And th there is sort of a dark side to stimulus. I mean, other than debt, of course, which is part of it. But it's really that you, you breed a certain amount of protectionism. Uh, fiscal stimulus has a tendency to make governments more protective of what they spent their money on. And Europe is, among other things, putting in place 
uh, you know, carbon border adjustment and, and things that seem, you know, quasi-protectionist in their own right. The Trump administration certainly uh, found uh, new uh, and innovative ways to use national security authorities uh, to deploy tariffs for protectionism. Uh, and so if you, if you look at the, the, the world we go into with multiple trillions of dollars, double-digit trillions of dollars of stimulus just in a year's time alone, we are looking at a world that, you know, on the one side is probably fraught with greater trade conflict, but on the other almost certainly involves a lot of border adjusting, which if you're, if you're in favor of carbon pricing and you don't care how you do it, that's a way to put a price on carbon. So, Kevin, this leads me to the question I was going to ask you about the international landscape, which is, you know, one of the things that's punctuated the Trump administration thus far has been trade and sanctions, right? And now that's not the sanctions bit we've seen before. We saw a, a bunch of that in the Obama administration as well. How much do you see trade and sanctions still being in the purview of what the Trump administration likes to do to deal with foreign policy issues? Are we are we going to be in for four more years of the same? And what's the impact for the energy, uh, the energy sector and all that? Well, there's a couple of very specific cases like uh, like Iran and Venezuela, where I think you can you can talk about how there's probably both sides, Trump and, and Biden would find ways to find deals eventually, different deals at different times. Uh, and there's areas like Russia, where you have a differential set of, of economic tools that are likely to be deployed in different measure, uh, and you know probably Biden more aggressive with sanctions than Trump. Uh, but China is really the, the the one that I think we mostly are talking about when we talk about this. After all, we've got you know half a trillion dollars of, of goods trade subject to tariffs, although the WTO says it's not okay. There's no appellate. Uh, body right now to do the adjudication on appeal of that that finding on September fifteenth. So, so here we are, and you know the the legacy of globalization, four decades or five decades of really robust globalism deployed economically and ideologically, is now being used for deglobalization. Uh, all, all the things that have become interlocked have become ways that countries can can use leverage over one another, uh, and this fight isn't going to end just because one of our two candidates wins. Uh, it's on, and it's probably going to define, you know, some portion of the next quarter century uh, and shape the world in a lot of different ways. So the, the difference between the two candidates becomes a little bit cloudy. Uh, you can listen to the Biden campaign say things that sound not dissimilar to what the Trump campaign has said. But of course, one must recall that the Trump campaign differentiated itself from the Republican orthodoxy by taking such a protectionist stance on trade. So the, uh, there are some things that are, whether it's reassuring or not, it, consistent. Uh, and uh, again, it's a question probably more of timing and magnitude than direction uh, when we talk about these. Paul, what about international climate issues? Uh, under you know, a Biden administration, the Biden administration said it would like to get back into the Paris Agreement uh, and increase the U.S. ambition uh, relative to, uh, to it. Trump administration, second Trump administration, arguably would leave in a much more final sense of the word. What's what's the outcome in both of those situations for action on international climate? Well, I think uh, on the Trump scenario, look, the, the Paris Agreement has already withstood one of the biggest challenges you could imagine uh, throwing at it in its tender young life, which is the the exit of one of its architects. Right. And I always think of the United States as 
as, as like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, when, when we are the good Dr. Jekyll, then we're working with the international community to uh, create structures that will withstand us when we turn into Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and now we've turned into Mr. Hyde and we're rattling the structure. And I do think it's positive for international governance that, uh, that the Paris Agreement has continued to exist and thrive and uh, the Trump administration tried and failed to peel off other members of the G20 in the early years and persuade them to follow its direction in moving away from Paris. And you saw a very unusual statement at the time from the G19 committing to, uh, to, to continue on. That's a very significant event in, in sort of multilateral history. So Paris as a structure, I think, will endure. Uh, the problem is that it's, it's just a framework. You know, it's not some perpetual motion machine designed to fix climate change. It requires nations to set targets and implement those targets and keep finance flowing to those, those who need it. Uh, so the absence of the United States from the international stage uh, certainly will slow down progress at a time when we cannot afford to slow anything down and we have to optimize the entire system to move as fast as possible. That's bad. I also think it's, you know, it's a case of the United States shooting itself in the foot because it, it will have ripple effects on other issues that even the Trump administration might care about and make it harder for us to achieve our international objectives, whether those are narrow uh, political objectives or broader kind of com interests that, 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 that endure regardless of, of who, who is in the White House. So I think it's uh, certainly a, a negative outcome for the United States and our international leverage, as well as, of course, for the climate at a critical moment. If, uh, if we have a Biden administration, then we will still find ourselves in a big hole to dig out of diplomatically. Um, you know, I was one of the early joiners of the Obama climate diplomacy team. And I remember that it took literally years uh, for us to dig ourselves out of that hole that we were in after the Bush administration, just by virtue of the choices they made on international climate. And although other countries liked what President Obama had to say, uh, they, they, they carried a deep reserve of distrust and, and resentment with them for quite a long time. And, and it's, it's hard to imagine how much worse that's gonna be this time around. Um, so what, what that means is that the, the US needs to show up with bold, uh, muscular, yet humble leadership internationally. And frankly, if I look at even, let's say, the Unity Task Force, the, the Bernie Biden Task Force recommendations on international climate, they're weak tea. You know, table stakes. Rejoin the Paris Agreement? Okay. Contribute to the Green Climate Fund? Sure. Support the Kigali Amendment on HFCs? Fine. Right? Th that list of six or seven things is not going to cut it internationally to get the U.S., back in a driver's seat on this agenda. We are going to have to step forward with bold and transformative ideas that are iconic examples of things that only the United States is capable of driving in multilateral fora, like accelerated phase out and replacement of the global coal fleet, like engaging industries much more clearly in the story of their, the decarbonization of global supply chains and, and global industries like doing for methane what we did for HFCs globally and on a rapid time scale, like 
uh, supercharging our work on research and development and the coordination of research and development for breakthrough technologies, including some like break the glass technologies like direct air capture. So uh, I don't see that stuff quite where I would like to see it in the plans so far. And, and we won't have that long to show in that scenario what, what this administration is, is all about, but I think that will be essential. Okay, so the U.S. has got to be the, if I put all those adjectives together, like the gentle giant of, uh, of climate change, right? Uh, bold, but, but humble, with some new ideas uh, to sort of prove U.S. credibility back on the climate stage. I, I do have one additional question that I think, Kevin, you've thought a lot about, like, what if this breaks the other way where, you know, countries that are actually trying to move really aggressively on climate decide that there's just not enough people like them in the world and they do need to enact these border carbon adjustments or there is a lot of industrial strategy that's going into sort of building resilience into supply chains and 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 everyone trying to sort of domesticize this sort of benefits from uh, manufacturing clean energy and things like that. Could this be disruptive to the global trade environment? And in, in which case do you think that's most likely going to happen in a second Trump administration, in a Biden administration that doesn't deliver enough sort of table stakes, as Paul was saying? Well, so I had a professor in college who wrote on a report, I gave you an F because I could not give you a Z. Uh, <laughs> until you translate in, into <laughs> English what you've written here, I will not grade this paper. And uh, at the time, I was not happy. I did not feel like I'd been done a favor. Uh, I write better now than I would have if I hadn't gotten that grade that day. And so uh, I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is a question of whether or not you want to learn from what you're being told. The world as we knew it, the global system that was designed and built for the world of the past, uh, is not well suited to the world of the present. We are we are facing some challenges that are, are not just limited to the global commons, but also the, the state of, of humanity. We have fast technology that is incompatible with slow bureaucracy. And uh, some of the, the ways that we've made change and made deals in the past are probably not going to be really viable. We have, you know, Paul's just given two examples of Paris and, uh, and maybe he didn't use the GACPOA, but international compacts that have lasted without U.S. support. That's also proof that international compacts can last without U.S. support. Uh, and uh, it raises the question of whether we're influential uh, in the system that was created in the post-war era and whether or not a new system uh, might need to be uh, created. You know, this is not discontinuous with Republican orthodoxy. This is actually pretty consistent. Uh, if you go back to Bush and even before, to, to as far back as Reagan, there's been this, this sense that it needed to, to be renovated. And to, to really deliver on the, the kinds of change that, that Paul is talking about, or just the, the agenda that the, the Republicans are talking about, the way the world works right now probably isn't going to do that. Uh, and so things probably break more before they coalesce into a new order. And one of the ways that we'll see that is the, the fragmentation of commerce. I, I feel like I got a degree in phrenology or something because I, I studied you know, international affairs at a time when we're, we're sort of becoming nationalists in every country. But the, the end result of that is probably not that we give up on commerce or trade. No, globalization probably outlasts deglobalization every time for the same reason that urbanization seems to be a tendency of humanity. But we, maybe we have to go through this spell. And so 
you know, the, the Trump administration is willing to throw the brick. Uh, and the question will be what a Biden administration would do and how far they're willing to go to try to assert that the, the order that, that was wasn't optimal and could be improved. Right now, there are vested actors in that order who want to keep it the way it is because they're gaining influence. Uh, China is the first and foremost of those actors, but by far uh, not the only one. So things aren't going necessarily great globally, but maybe there's a favor here. And uh, maybe some of what is yet to come will start to seem like it was, it was good when we look back on it 10 or 15 years hence. Funny thinking about breaking the global order as being a favor to future <laughs> future leaders, but uh, I guess that is one frame. Well, Kevin and Paul, I'm going to end where we began. Uh, 2020 election is not for the faint of heart. There's a lot on the line. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk through some of the scenarios with us and share your thoughts. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Sarah. Always a pleasure. Thanks to Paul, Kevin, and Sarah for joining another episode of Energy 360. Find more episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. Follow us on Twitter for updates at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening. Thank you.